Chapter 4 of Marooned in the Forest, the story of a primitive fight for life by Alpheus Hyatt Verrill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4. I set forth on my journey. Although I felt a hunter's elation at having captured the beaver, he was really of less value to me than a muskrat. His flesh, especially his tail, was edible, I knew, but I doubted if I would care to devour his meat unless very hungry, for the scent and taste of castor would be too strong. His fur, although thick, was by no means in good condition, and even if it had been prime, it would have been of little value to me in the forest, but nevertheless I foresaw that I might find use for skins, and, very wisely as it turned, decided to skin the creature and dry and preserve the hide. While skinning the beaver I was attracted by the strong white tendons of his legs and tail, and, knowing how useful such tough, thread-like material might prove, I carefully removed and washed the tendons and placed them in a safe spot to dry. The beaver's meat looked white, clean, and tender, and I decided to cook and taste some of it. The tail I also decided to cook, for I knew the Indians and trappers considered beaver tails a great delicacy. The meat was placed to broil above the hot coals, and the tail, which seemed tough, was placed to boil in the birch bark pot, or rather, in a fresh receptacle, for I found that after once using the bark for boiling it was worthless and that a new dish must be provided each time I wished to boil anything. While the meat and tail were cooking, I spread the skin of my beaver to dry, and it then occurred to me that perhaps beaver flesh might be jerked or dried as well as venison. Accordingly, I cut strips from the carcass and hung them up. By the time this was done, the meat was thoroughly broiled and ready to taste. Much to my surprise, there was but a very slight musky taste to the flesh, and while it was far from delicious without salt or seasoning, yet it was much better than mussels, and I greatly relished the flavor of real meat once more. The tail proved too grisly and tough to suit me, and I doubt if I could have devoured it unless I were actually starving. It reminded me of pig's feet, and I wondered how any human beings could like it. No doubt, if properly prepared, it might be far more palatable, but I then and there decided that beaver's tails would be eliminated from my menu unless I was face-to-face -face with starvation. I was not sorry to discover that beaver flesh was edible, for I knew that where there was one beaver, there were doubtless more, and that I might reasonably expect to catch others, but unless the meat could be dried and preserved, it would be of little value for my purposes. I determined to dry trout. While thinking of this, my mind turned to the matter of tackle with which to capture fish without the time and labor of bailing out the pools, a slow method at best, and only possible where there were deep pools or basins. With the hemlock roots, I could braid lines which I felt sure would serve my purpose, but I could not conceive of any way by which I could form a hook. I happened to notice the carcass of the beaver and picked it up to throw it into the river when I noticed the sharp, chisel-like teeth and strong bones. For a moment, I stood regarding them, turning over in my mind my various wants and striving to think of some purpose for which I could use either teeth or bones, for it seemed a pity to waste anything that might serve any useful purpose. I thought of fish hooks, for I had heard of certain savage races using bone hooks, but I could not imagine a way of transforming either teeth or bones into trout hooks, and I was on the point of throwing the body into the stream when bows and arrows again came to my mind, and instantly it occurred to me that the bones of my beaver might be sharpened and used for arrowheads. At any rate, it was a scheme worth trying, and I promptly began to dissect out the leg bones from the remaining meat. Lest I should want other material at some future time, I also removed and set aside the huge front teeth. This occupied a long time, and I had barely time to walk out to the trout brook, catch two fish after a deal of labor, and return to camp ere night fell. One of the trout served for my supper, and the other was split, cleaned, and hung up to dry with the beaver meat. 
The following morning, I awoke to find the woods dripping and the world gray with a cold, drizzling rain. From my fire, a thin blue wisp of smoke arose, and I hurried to replenish the fuel and save the little life there was left in the embers. Before I could fan the coals into flame, the lowering gray sky poured forth a torrent of rain, and with a faint hiss, the last hot coals grew black and dead. Soaked through, chilled, miserable, and disgusted, I crept into my hut and, seeking a sheltered spot, sought to secure another fire with my knife, pebble, and handkerchief. What was my disappointment to find the handkerchief damp and soggy with moisture, and while one or two spots appeared quite dry, my utmost endeavors failed to ignite the cotton cloth. For an hour or more I labored until my hands were cut and bleeding and the back of my knife blade was worn rough and battered, and then, thoroughly disheartened, I gave up in despair. Hungry as I was, I had nothing save uncooked fungus to eat, for I had not yet reached the point where raw mussels, raw frogs, or raw fish could be considered. Sitting in the partial shelter of my lean-to, I spent a dreary and forlorn morning, for while the roof was fairly tight, the rain drove in at front and sides, and only in the very center of the hut could I remain fairly dry. My wet clothes clung to my skin, chilling me to the bone each time the cold wind whistled down the river, and my reflections were far from cheering, for I knew that this was but a sample of what I might expect. Summer was over and the autumn rains had begun, and in a few weeks more icy winds and snow squalls would succeed them. With a roaring fire, all might have been well, and I could have laughed at the elements, but without fire, I realized how helpless I was, and ever uppermost in my mind was how to safeguard myself against the loss of my fire in the future, provided I again succeeded in starting a blaze, something which I considered very doubtful. Toward noon, however, the rain ceased, the sky cleared, and by mid-afternoon the sun was shining brightly. I lost no time in finding a sunny stone whereon to spread my handkerchief, and as soon as the bit of cloth was dry, I again essayed to ignite it with a spark from my flint. This time I met with more success, and after several trials, I obtained a blaze and soon had a roaring fire. As soon as the fire was burning well, I cooked food, and while this was being done, busied myself in making a neat, tight box or case of birch bark in which to carry my handkerchief. I was fearful lest the cotton cloth should give out long before I reached the end of my journey, for only a small portion remained intact. To provide against such a loss, I tore bits of cloth from my shirt, charred spots on the strips with coals from the fire, and packed these carefully in additional birch bark receptacles. To make doubly sure that these were watertight, I smeared the edges of the packages with pitch, as I had seen Joe repair rents in the canoe, and having thus provided against future showers as far as was possible, I sat down to my meager meal, and the world and my future took on a more roseate hue. While I was fireless during the forenoon, I had determined to try a bow drill and spindle for making fire, for I felt that if I could obtain the proper materials, this would be a far easier and quicker way of making fire than by flint and steel, which would be reserved for emergencies. With this object in view, I entered the woods and searched diligently for materials for my fire-making apparatus. As I have already mentioned, I had made fire by this crude, savage method when a boy, and I knew by experience the materials best suited to the purpose. The bow was an easy matter, for spruce was as good as anything, and this tree was abundant everywhere. While cutting the bow for fire-making, I remembered my determination to attempt the manufacture of bow and arrows, and I selected several likely-looking spruce boughs for this purpose. I next looked about for a suitable stick for the drill and selected some straight, old, dry fir roots from a tree which had been torn up and blown over by some winter's storm years before. 
A piece of the dry weathered wood from the same tree served as material from which to make a fire block, and from beneath the bark of a dead pine I secured a good supply of punk. A hard pine knot was selected for a drill socket, but despite every endeavor I could find nothing which I was sure would serve as tinder. Shredded cedar bark I knew was as good as anything, but not a cedar could I find, and finally I decided to try the thin, papery, dried birch bark which flaked in little curling rolls from the trees. Armed with these various things, I returned to my lean-to and was soon busily preparing the materials for use. The flexible, springy spruce limb was whittled down to a rude bow, and not until then did I remember that all my youthful attempts at thus making fire had proved failures until I used a leather bowstring. For a moment I was nonplussed, for leather was out of the question, until I thought of my shoelaces. One of these was sacrificed and replaced by hemlock roots, and I then whittled down a fir root into a double-pointed octagonal spindle about 15 inches long. With the tip of my knife blade, I dug out a recess in the pine knot and whittled the outside to fit easily in my hand, and then turned my attention to the fire block. A piece of the dry-seasoned fir was split into a little slab about three-fourths of an inch thick, with notches cut along one edge, and I was ready for my experiment at fire-making. Upon a smooth, dry stone, I placed a piece of the dry pine punk with another piece close at hand. Next, I set up the fire block upon the piece of pine and with the bowstring took a turn about the center of the drill. Setting one end of the drill in a notch of the fire block, I placed the drill socket, made from the knot, upon the other end of the drill, and steadying the fire block with my foot, I pressed firmly down upon the socket with my left hand and drew the bow back and forth with my right hand. With even, steady strokes, I whirled the drill around and around, and presently a little mound of brownish powdery sawdust began to accumulate on the punk beneath the fire block. Gradually, the pile increased. The hole made by the drill in the block grew larger and larger, and a faint smell of scorching wood greeted my nostrils. Harder and harder, I pressed down on the socket. Faster and faster, I twirled the drill, and an instant later, the sawdust turned black and a slender column of smoke rose from it. Dropping drill and bow, I stooped and blew gently on the smoldering powder, and as the smoke increased, I lifted the fire block from the punk beneath, slipped a few bits of the papery birch bark into the powder, clapped the second pine punk on top of all, and, seizing the hole in my hand, waved it swiftly back and forth. Hardly had I swept it through the air when the bark burst into flame, and, knowing success was mine, I danced and capered about as pleased as the first time I had accomplished the feat years before. The tender punk, fire block, and socket were enclosed in birch bark packages. The drill and bow were laid carefully in the roof of my hut, and I felt sure that I would be able at any time to secure a fire in dry weather and, unless soaked with rain, that I could be reasonably sure of kindling a flame even in wet weather, for I now had two distinct methods of obtaining fire. My fire-making apparatus was such a success that I was anxious to go ahead with my bow and arrows, and I spent a long time scraping and whittling down the best of my spruce branches to form a bow. The ones I had selected were dead, seasoned limbs, for I well knew that green wood would warp and would have very limited spring. At last, one of the boughs was fashioned to suit me, and I looked about for a bowstring. Hemlock roots seemed the only available material, and a long time was spent in braiding enough of the fine roots together to form a string for the bow. Eager to try the new weapon, I cut a notch in one end of a fairly straight stick, placed it on the string, and drew the bow. 
As I released the string, the bow sprang straight with a delightful twang, and the stick went humming through the air, but with a loud snap, the string parted. I was so greatly pleased at the strength and elasticity of my bow that the mere matter of the parted string troubled me very little, for I felt confident I could make some sort of a cord which would be strong enough for the purpose, and I dropped my bow and hurried into the woods to search for suitable sticks from which to make arrows. Sticks there were in plenty, but although I sought everywhere, I was unable to find one which was really straight and smooth. Cutting the best I could find in the hope that I might be able to whittle them into presentable shape, I made my way back to camp. I was exceedingly hungry, and with my mind on food, I examined the beaver meat and fish which I had hung up. It was an ill-smelling mess, and without more ado, I cast it into the river and dined on mussels and fungus, for I was too tired to attempt a trip to my frog pond or the brook. The next morning, however, I visited the brook and my deadfall, but the latter was empty, although sprung, and I failed to secure a single trout. The reason was simple. The brook had been so swollen by the recent rains that it was impossible to dam up any of the pools, while the pond was filled to overflowing and only one small frog could be found by dint of the most careful search. Despite my ill luck, however, I returned to camp quite elated, for while making my way about the little pond in search of frogs, I had discovered some thick bushes with reddish stems so straight, smooth, and polished that they at once struck me as being perfectly adapted for arrows. Not until long afterward did I learn that this bush was known as arrowwood and that the Indians formerly used it for their arrows. With a supply of this useful bush, I busied myself at arrow making, for although I had no feathers, I thought that I might be able to make arrows which would serve to kill the tame and unsuspicious birds and animals, and I had but to kill one large bird in order to obtain feathers to make better arrows. Several times I had seen partridges or grouse, and on one or two occasions I had attempted to snare them by means of a hemlock root noose on the end of a light pole, but the material was too coarse for the purpose, and the birds invariably avoided the snare. Once or twice I had attempted to kill them with stones or clubs, and once I had even thrown my spear at them, but in every instance they had escaped. Perhaps it was the season, perhaps the birds were suspicious of the first man they had seen, but whatever the reason, the fact remains that they were far wiser and more wary than the grouse I had often seen when hunting in Joe's company. It was a simple matter to cut notches in one end of each arrow, but it was a far more difficult job to fit heads. The beaver's bones were the only material I had for this purpose, and I found it hard work indeed to cut and sharpen these into any semblance of an arrowhead. Indeed, I found it so difficult that I even sought to chip arrowheads from the pebbles of the river, but I had not the remotest idea how stone arrowheads were made, and my efforts in this direction resulted only in bruised fingers and irregular broken stones of no earthly use for my purpose. By dint of hard work and the expenditure of many hours, I finally cut and ground down some bones until they had sharp points at one end and a recess at the other, and to these bones I bound my arrow sticks with the sinews taken from the beaver. I still had a bowstring to make, and as I worked away at the bones, I busied my mind trying to invent some sort of cord which would stand the strain of the bow. I thought of the tendons of the beaver, but these were neither long enough to serve the purpose, nor were there enough to braid together to form a string, and I was at last compelled to fall back upon hemlock roots. An examination of the broken bowstring revealed the fact that it had parted at the knot at one end, and to avoid this, I decided to braid or lash a loop in the new string. I made this new cord much heavier than the old, selected the fibers with greater care, and smeared the hole with pitch. 
The loops at the ends were twisted and lashed in place with tendons, and when all was done, I drew the bow with some trepidation for fear all my hard labor would be wasted. Much to my satisfaction, the string withstood the strain, and I practiced until dark with straight sticks which had bits of stone gummed on with pitch for heads, and I found that up to twenty feet I could frequently hit a mark the size of a partridge. Anxious to test my weapons on real game, I arose early the following morning and entered the woods in search of partridge. I soon flushed a flock of grouse from among the young fir trees, and as they perched upon the branches and craned their heads to view the intruder, I approached closely, placed an arrow on the string, drew the bow, and let drive. I doubt if I was a dozen feet distant from the birds, and they were packed so closely together on the branch that I could scarcely have missed them. But when the bone-tipped stick struck one of the grouse in the breast, and with a great flapping he came tumbling to the earth, I felt as if I was the most marvelous archer in the world. As the partridge fell, the others took wing and whirred out of sight, but I paid little attention to them and hurried to pick up my first feathered game. The arrow was still sticking in the bird's flesh, although the stick had been broken in his fall, but the head was the only valuable portion, and I hurried back to my fire, happy in the thought that I now had a weapon with which I could actually kill game. The wing feathers of the grouse were carefully saved, and after I had dined from the delicate meat and had picked every bone clean, I devoted all the rest of the day to feathering and pointing my arrows. How to carry them was the next question, and here the beaver skin came into mind. I was learning rapidly to think out and to find ways and means, and was acquiring a store of useful knowledge, and I smiled to myself as I thought how far better equipped I was to make my journey out of the woods now than I would have been when I first scrambled out of the river not so many days before. The beaver skin furnished an excellent quiver, or case, for my bow and arrows, with plenty of room for a supply of mussels and fungus, and my fire bow and drill in addition, and as there was nothing more to detain me here, I decided to start on my tramp the next morning. I ate a plentiful breakfast of fungus and mussels, and then, with the skin filled with my possessions on my back, with pockets bulging with hemlock roots, tendons, bones, and flint, and with a number of mussels and some fungi tied in a bundle in one hand, and my frog spear in the other, I set out on my long tramp. As I reached the bend of the river and glanced back for a last look at the little lean-to beside the river, I felt as if I was leaving home. The wilderness had been kind to me, and I had fared better than I had dared hope in this spot. As I turned again toward the south and picked my way along the river bank, little did I dream what fate had in store for me or how many dreary months would pass ere I reached my goal. End of chapter 4